hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Have you started thinking about your summer goals? Are you hoping for some accountability to help you stay motivated through the summer heat? Join Author Accelerator and the hashtag AmWritingPodcast for a free weekly writing challenge. The 2022 Summer Blueprint Button the Chair Challenge will include 10 episodes hosted by certified book coaches, Jenny Nash and KJ Delantonia. In each episode, Jenny and KJ will give you an actionable step to take to further along your manuscript or revision. You can also sign up for weekly reminder emails to help you stay on track. Each episode will include interviews with other experts across the publishing industry about their writing journeys, all to keep you inspired, motivated, and ready to write all summer long. Learn more and sign up for the challenge by visiting authoraccelerator.com slash writing. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writing. Today's guest is a contemporary romance writer. After spending most of her life bouncing all over the East Coast, she currently lives in Oklahoma City with her fiancé and their toothless cat. How to Fake It in Hollywood is her first novel. No one is more surprised than she is that her lifelong obsession with pop culture actually led to something useful. It's my pleasure to welcome Ava Wilder. Ava, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And for our listeners, today we have a special guest again. We have our guest interviewer, Femi Amatade from The Book Alert, who's coming on to chat with Ava. So I'm going to hand it across to them and they can take it from here. Thank you for that introduction, Bianca. And welcome to the show, Ava. And we are here to talk about your debut, How to Fake It in Hollywood. And let me just start off by saying I have to be completely transparent. As of late, romance novels haven't really been my thing. They can perhaps be a bit too cutesy for me or a bit too, let's say, hallmarksy. I don't know if that's a word, but we'll say it's a word, hallmarksy. And I end up a little bit disappointed because perhaps I'm looking for something that isn't traditionally in the genre. But to be completely honest, I really enjoyed your book. I caught myself smiling to myself quite a few times and I was like, Femi, what is going on? Are you going back to romance or what is going on? So yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. So my first question is, what is it about the romance genre that made you say, you know what, my first book, it has to be within the romance genre? Well, I actually never, first of all, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's nice to hear that, you know, I can be, I could be your gateway back into romance. <laughs> but I never thought that I would write a book until I started reading romance because I grew up, I was a really big reader. But as an adult, I was kind of like, I don't know if this is something that is really like realistic for me to pursue. And I maybe thought I would get into like screenwriting or or something like that, which I think even has like an even higher barrier to entry than novel writing, which also has a big barrier to entry. And I got very obsessed with reading romance novels at the beginning of the pandemic, which I think a lot of people did because everyone needed some escapism, some serotonin. And after a few months of just like binging romance, I was like, well, maybe this is where my voice is. Like, maybe this is something that I could do. And that's how I ended up here. And you said you became obsessed with reading romance novels during the pandemic. How would you say your book is similar or perhaps different to those that you were reading? And could you tell us which ones that you were reading? I was just basically going down the lists of like best. I mean, I was reading both contemporary and historical, but I was sort of giving myself a crash course on Sally Thorne, um, Talia Hibbert, Helen Huang, just like everyone, you know, and just having my mind completely blown like every day at sort of what was there in this genre that I hadn't really even known existed. Part of what attracted me to romance is that it has this like structure and tropes that you can kind of go back to if you're feeling lost. And because I think that's also sort of what intimidated me about trying to write kind of a big project like this, where it's kind of like there are too many options where to go. And I think like having the level of constraint that you need in romance is very useful and like being like, okay, well, I had this kind of scene. So like now I have to sort of slow it down and maybe they have to be apart now. And like, you know, kind of having this framework was very helpful. I don't know about different. I, I think the thing that surprised me is that when I was trying to see if this concept had been like overdone is that like celebrity romance is obviously a huge thing, but like the vast majority of them are celebrity and normal person. Um, and it's not like there are no celebrity celebrity romances, but there are a lot fewer than I thought there would be. So that was a relief to be like, okay, this hasn't been done like that. Not that it hasn't been done, but there might be room for this story in here. So it was as if you saw kind of like a gap in the market and you were thinking, okay, I could have my story. I could, you know, create the story. There's not as many celebrity romances. So it's not inspired by perhaps your own love life. I, I don't know. Are you an <laughs> undercover celebrity? Are you dating no. an undercover celebrity? Who knows? 
Uh, no, well, honestly, the inspiration was that I was like, I don't want this to be about my own life. And I've always been like very into pop culture. So I was like, this is something that I can write about without getting bogged down in research about this kind of other world. Like this is pretty much the only thing <laughs> that I know enough about to write a book theoretically without being like, oh, I give up. This is too hard. And uh, you spoke a little bit about tropes. So this is not a spoiler, but this is a fake dating kind of relationship. In your opinion, are there any elements or tropes within the romance genre that, that are becoming too cliche or repetitive? Are you thinking, oh, why is this even a thing? Are there any kind of elements or tropes that you see that you're like, this, we need to stop? I don't know about stop. I think, you know, tropes are cyclical. Like I think things like the really possessive like alpha male is sort of on the outs and there's a more kind of like kind of healthy like well-rounded uh you know in in male female romance kind of like the male lead is a little bit less of like kind of an aggressive <laughs> you know i think that the the hunger for that has sort of like receded also like the evil ex it's been nice to see is like kind of less of a a thing. But I don't know, I think every trope like has the possibility to have like a new fresh take on it. I think the only bad tropes are the ones that are like, problematic. But even that sometimes those are, are fun to read in the frame of like, this is just a pure fantasy and not something that I actually would want to happen in my life, which is what's nice about romance. You said something quite interesting about how some of the not so good tropes are being pushed out. And there is a lot of talk right now, especially on Bookstagram, about diversity in romance novels. And perhaps there's a lack of diversity. We're not really seeing, for example, a lot of black romance. And I did notice in your book that you did include quite a diverse cast, let's say. The best friend of Grey, Camilla, I believe she she's black. Did you do that intentionally? And what, what are your thoughts on the whole uh, diversity in romance argument, the conversations that are happening right now. What are your thoughts on that? I think as a white writer, it's important to think about like what is and isn't my lane to write about in terms of diverse characters. And I think it only makes sense for me to try to make the supporting cast as diverse as possible because, you know, they're living in Los Angeles. They're living in a diverse world, but just reflects the reality of the world. But I think in terms of trying to uplift the voices of people who are writing their lived experiences and try to help them have more exposure, because I think the books that are getting more support there's still a lot of work to be done in that arena. And, um, you know, as an author, there's only so much I can do. But it's definitely it's been great to see that there's more of it. Um, there's still a long way to go. But yeah, I think it's great the the progress that's been made so far. I just want to jump in there and say Eva's made a really good point there. So as white authors, we don't want to be appropriating voices that aren't our own, certainly, but we do want to reflect a world in which there are diverse characters. And so we may not write a character from their perspective, but having a best friend who is a person of color, etc., and we're not writing from their perspective, that's a wonderful way to show a society that's really diverse without us appropriating appropriating a culture or, or something that isn't our own. And that's a really good follow up to my next question, because I am personally of the opinion that I don't think it is a white person's responsibility to write from the perspective of, say, a black woman who is looking for love. 
I don't think that's your responsibility. I think it's the publishers to give black authors that space, that platform. But I have read perhaps some popular romance novels where there are the side characters, where they are black characters. But sometimes it does feel a little bit gimmicky. It feels as if it's a tick box kind of exercise. How do you go about creating those characters without it feeling that way? Do you get perhaps like a black friend to have a look and read it? Or how do you go about doing that? Well, I think especially in romance, it's hard because it's like the supporting character's job is kind of too like you want to have the balance where it doesn't feel like they're pulling too much focus, but you still want to have them feel like fully formed and like they have their own thing going on when they're not on the page, as opposed to other genres where the supporting characters have maybe have more of a role than to just like be supporting. But I mean, I think I just tried to be I we discussed getting sensitivity readers, but that didn't end up happening for this, which I uh, you know, wish I had pushed for a little bit more, but as a debut author, it's kind of like you don't want to <laughs> seem like whatever. But I think I just really tried to make sure that they all had kind of backgrounds that were either on the page or like I knew them, that they had their own goals that were sort of outside and that they all had like they had their own love stories that were kind of happening alongside. And, you know, it's possible that I didn't do it correctly. And, you know, I'm trying to improve as a writer every time. And that is part of it. I'm, again, just going to jump in there. So in terms of romance genres, for our listeners, remember that those secondary characters allow for subplots. And subplots help move the action forward when your main character's plot perhaps is getting a bit of a lull and there's not that much happening. So then the secondary character's sort of plot can come to the fore, which keeps readers turning pages. And I know for me, what I love, especially when I'm reading about a diverse sort of set of characters, is when I get to a certain page and that's when I realize that the character is black because it wasn't upfront centered that this is a black character therefore tick the box it's just this is her best friend this is how her life works and then something happens and we're like oh that character's black cool I just the way I'm kind of thinking about it and I know as authors we want the reader to immediately imagine the character the way we're imagining it but readers tend to imagine characters the way they want anyway and yeah Ava I thought I thought you did a, a great job with this and just to echo that, I do think you did a good job with it as well. So as this is a writing podcast, I just want to talk a little bit about how you put the story together, specifically talking about writing chemistry. So as a reader who is not a writer, I think it's easier to perhaps watch chemistry on a TV show or, or a film as opposed to reading it and feeling it through the pages. I think it's actually quite hard to feel it. So I can't actually imagine how hard it is to write it from your perspective. Was it difficult to write chemistry between the two uh, main characters, Ethan and Grey? Did you have to think of perhaps a celebrity crush, your fiancé? Or yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? I feel like it's just about creating the characters in a way that like you understand sort of what they like about each other, what they're sort of like scared of in each other, what they kind of bring out in each other. And then once you get them on the page together, it feels it kind of just like happens organically. Ideally, it's about the right pair. And sometimes you'll get characters on the page where you're like, I didn't realize that you guys were gonna have chemistry. And that is bad because it's taking away from the sexual relationship. Like these characters are vibing more than I thought they would. 
But yeah, I think it's sort of, uh, it's hard to do intentionally. And I think it doesn't like, as a reader, I feel like it's so subjective, where sometimes you'll see people who are like, these characters had amazing chemistry. And some people like these characters had no chemistry. So it's kind of like, you can't please everybody as a writer, you can only sort of follow your own instincts and what feels right. Yeah, and hope that it hope that it works out. Can I just jump in there? So when I interviewed Emily Henry, because she does witty banter and that kind of thing so incredibly well. And she gave advice to our listeners and she was like read it aloud read this dialogue aloud to be like does this sound like dialogue does it hit does it land when you're doing that isn't that something you do Ava yeah I think because I sort of come from like a screenwriting background where like the dialogue is everything and I actually noticed like going from screenwriting to book writing my dialogue is actually like a little more restrained because it doesn't have to do as much like heavy lifting but because you can literally just say what they're thinking but yeah definitely thinking about rhythm is really important and just like hearing it in your head because you know I think that's not necessarily something you think about for a book because it is being read and not read aloud but I definitely think that that's really important is to think about not just like how it reads but like how it sounds. And just on that, so remember for our listeners, we're writing it down and we picture our readers kind of experiencing it internally, but never forget that every book becomes an audiobook and there's going to be a voice actor, voice actress, someone who sits and is reading it aloud and who then brings it alive through reading it aloud. So even though the reader's kind of experiencing it inside, there's going to be a lot who are experiencing through the audiobook. So so that's something to keep in mind as well. And it's not something I thought about when I first started writing. I would do these kind of puns that made sense when you looked at it on the page. And then you realize when the person reads it aloud, the pun no longer works because they're saying the actual word and the pronunciation may get in the way. So that's something for you to keep in mind as well. So I did notice that it's a bit of a slow burn romance. It's a bit of a slow burn uh, build up. There weren't, you know, sex scenes left, right and center. Did you do that on purpose? Yeah. How did that come about? Well, actually, there was originally slightly more sex in it, but I had to cut it out just because there was too much plot. (laughs) It's like it was just too long. But I mean, I think for romance, the sex scenes really do have to serve as they can't just be sort of not that that's not enjoyable sometimes to just have them there for the sake of being there. But if your word count's getting a little high, they have to be serving a purpose in terms of the plot, in terms of developing the characters and showing like a new facet in their relationship. But it was also like, as I was writing it, I wasn't really sure when they were going to have sex or like how it was going to happen. Like it kind of evolved as the plot evolved. And I know like some writers do it the opposite where it's like they write the sex scenes first and then kind of like retrofit the the plot around that. And it's kind of like, you know, whatever works. But for me, I tried to look at the sexual aspect of their relationship is kind of part of the whole package. And you kind of have to look at it holistically in the way that their relationship is developing kind of overall. And is it awkward to write sex scenes? Because sometimes when I'm watching uh, a TV show, um, let's say Bridgerton, there's quite a lot of steam in that. I remember season one, I was like, oh my gosh, is it awkward for these two to be doing all this? Uh, is it awkward for you to to write it? You know, it's more awkward for me to re- reread it later. <laughs> it's like the editing phases, especially if I'll like see my editor's comments and it's like at a comma here it's like oh god like someone's in the room with me yeah I mean I had never written a sex scene before I wrote this book like I had never even written a kissing scene so it was very much like I hope this is working so that was definitely part of the self-consciousness 
But even writing my second book, which is actually a lot steamier, I have also been feeling like, am I (laughs) going to be able to get away with this? Even though compared to many books, it's very tame. Just two things I want to throw in here. So one, I've seen a lot of literary authors or book club authors who are quite snobbish about commercial fiction and it's not real fiction if it's not literary or whatever, and they look down on um, genre fiction. But writing a sex scene is damn difficult. I think I've written it once. I think for my new book that's coming out in August, I've got one masturbation scene, and it's a woman in her 80s who is masturbating. And that was really tough to write, really, really hard. Uh, Pardon the pun. And so for those of you who are writing literary or commercial fiction, sit down, write a sex scene, and it gives you newfound respect for writers who do this so well in the genre. And can I just say, Femi, that I read an article that said a deflated netball was the secret to so much of the sex scenes in Bridgerton. Because they now have people who are there, particularly to make sure that actors or actresses do not feel exploited or uncomfortable during the filming of scenes, so that someone doesn't put a hand where the actress did not agree a hand could go, etc. And it was very interesting to me to read about the deflated netball. So for our listeners, Google deflated netball and Bridgerton. That is your random fact for the day. Thank you, Bianca. <laughs> Ava, you did mention your second book. Are you able to tell us a little bit about it? It's, you know, I have a, a two book deal. This is the second book in that deal. I'm actively um, in developmental edits for it right now. It's in the same world as How to Fake It. It has new main characters, but there are some supporting characters that pop up. And the main tropes are um, second chance and enemies to lovers. But I think that is all I can say. But I'm, I'm really excited about it. And is there anything that you, you learned whilst you were writing How to Fake It that you're taking with you as you're writing or, or as you've written your second book? I think the main thing is that I really took for granted how easy it was to write How to Fake It because writing a book under contract versus writing a book like just for yourself for fun is just like a totally different experience. And it feels like writing this book, it feels like I have never written a book before. It's taken me like four times as long. It's just been such a difficult (laughs) process. But yeah, I think I, I wish I had someone to tell me because I think there is so much of an emphasis for like aspiring writers to be like, well, I want to get an agent, I want to get published. But it's like the joy that and like, just the pure pleasure of, of writing, like you kind of lose that once you are kind of in the market and like you're writing something not purely to be sold, but like it's, it's different. It's a different emotional experience for sure. So for the very final question, so you mentioned some books that you read during the pandemic. Are there any books that you would recommend for any aspiring romance writers to read to perhaps give them some tools, some tips on how to write a good romance book? Yeah. So in terms of craft books, Romancing the Beat is just an amazing resource. And I'm someone who is really bad at beat sheets and being like, does this plot point apply to this beat? But like, there are so many useful things in that book, even if you're not like a beat sheet writer to kind of keep in mind while you're writing that and to sort of extrapolate what you've read in romance and be like, oh, yeah, this does, you know, apply to X, Y, and Z. And I think in general, just like read as much romance as you can get your hands on. And if you find an author you love, follow them, because it's just like, it's such a diverse genre. And part of the joy in it is that like, 
there's really something in there for everyone. And if you want to write it, read, (laughs) read what you love. And then, you know, I think that's, that's the best place to go. Excellent insights from Eva and Femi. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. For our listeners, we will put How to Fake It on Hollywood on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Remember, if you purchase it through there, you're supporting Ava, you're supporting an independent bookstore, and you're supporting the podcast at the same time. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or... The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. I'd like to let you know about a fundraiser that we're doing that, besides raising funds for a really excellent cause, will give you an opportunity to win one of three awesome prizes. Now, my first novel, Hum If You Don't Know the Words, was translated into Ukrainian. And I recently had a Ukrainian reader reach out to say that reading my book had offered her solace and distraction during a really difficult time in her life living in a war zone in the Ukraine. Now, after chatting with her, we decided to do some fundraising for various nonprofits who are doing such amazing work there. 
So here's the deal. For every $20 you donate, you get one ticket into a draw to win one of three awesome prizes sponsored by Carly, Cece, and myself. If you win one of those prizes, you'll get to decide if you'd like a 45-minute brainstorming session with us or if you'd prefer that we give you a detailed 40-page critique of your work in progress. So you get to pick the prize depending on what you need the most. The more you donate, the more tickets you get. Head over to theshitaboutwriting.com for more details and to find the link to the GoFundMe. Support an amazing cause and stand a chance to win an awesome prize. Today's guest wrote the novels It Had to Be You, The Regulars, The Bucket List and others. She's the host and founder of the popular storytelling night Generation Woman. A native Australian, she lives in Brooklyn with a hot wife and a fridge full of cheese. It's my pleasure to welcome Georgia Clark. Georgia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Now, for our listeners, I just want to give you a bit of an overview in terms of what Island Time is about, and then Georgia and I will be diving into that. So here we go. The Kellys are messy, loud, loving Australians. The Lees are sophisticated, aloof, buttoned-up Americans. They have nothing in common except for the fact that their daughters are married. When a nearby volcano erupts during their short vacation to a remote tropical island, off the coast of Queensland, the two families find themselves stranded together for six weeks. With only two island employees making up the rest of their party, everyone is forced to question what or who they really want. Island Time is a sumptuous summer read that dives deep into queer romance, family secrets, ambition, parenthood, and a bird chasing bromance. The sexy, sun-soaked paradise of white sandy beaches, crystal clear waters, and lush rainforest will show you it's never too late to change your destiny. So, wonderful book. I absolutely loved it. Now, Georgia, on the show, we have two agents who are often talking about people's query letters that they send in so that we can critique to give them the best possible shot at landing their dream agent. And we often have problems with prologues because people write them wrong. They use them for the wrong reasons. Now, your prologue I absolutely loved, and I would love it if you could read it to our listeners, please. Thank you. Yes, I would love to read it out. And thank you for that lovely compliment. All right, here we go. Prologue. 63 miles from the southeastern coast of Queensland, Australia, is an island unlike any other. Most of it has never been logged or mined or trampled by tourists shoving shells in their pockets. Much of the land is as it was pre-human. Fewer than 60 visitors are permitted to visit at any one time. The island is so remote it appears as an afterthought. At roughly six miles long and one and a half miles wide, it isn't particularly large. You can hike from one end to the other in a day. But its modest 3,000 acres are home to some of the most astounding biodiversity on the planet. Like most powerful places, it has more than one name. The first is for the ship whose rusting skeleton can still be found where it wrecked on the western shore in 1803, Lady Lushington. The Aussies shorten this to Lush. The second is the island's indigenous name in the language of the Butchula people, Monday, meaning pretty. Two small, uncomfortable ferries service the island daily, crossing the Coral Sea, which is part of the Pacific Ocean. And on this hot morning in mid-March, only one passenger is on board. 
She scans the endless ocean for so long, she begins to wonder if mysterious Monday is simply the stuff of legend. Surely there can be no life out here so far from the mainland. But without warning, the horizon buckles, rising up. An ochre red cliff soars out of the sea, crowned in a tangle of subtropical rainforests. An ancient world of towering pines and oversized ferns, emerald green and prehistoric. The southern end, the highest peak. The ferry circles the head, aiming for Monday's only wharf. A white wedding trail of foam trails behind the boat. The cliffs begin to dip, steamy rainforests opening up into airy eucalyptus woodland. A sea breeze picks up the scent of lemon and pine. The restless sea quiets into the clear waters of a bay. A crescent-shaped fringe of silica sand, pale as a wishbone, kisses shallows that begin as transparent as glass before deepening into a clear and tender blue. Not another human being in sight. Nothing but wheeling seabirds, swooping graceful as calligraphy and the triumphant cries of the cicadas ringing out in the sticky, sun-drenched morning. The ferry lifts over a swell. A bottle of white wine nudges out of the paper bag of groceries at the young woman's feet and rolls across the boat's metal floor. She scoops it up like an errant toddler. There are enough supplies and treats for a week, not a weekend. The boat bumps against the wooden wharf. A loop of rope is thrown, secured. Amelia Kelly correctly suspects this is where her life will change forever, but not for the reason she thinks. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right, so, so for our listeners there, you need to head to our bookshop.org affiliate page where we're linking to Island Time. Take a look at the cover as well. And it's always so interesting for me in terms of how publishers choose covers, how they decide what kind of category writing is, because this cover screams beach read. And I mean, the book's called Island Time. But notice how lush and how beautiful the language is in this prologue. So we tend to think that if something genre fiction, you know, the writing is going to be of a different quality of sort of upmarket or literary fiction. But Georgia absolutely proves this wrong. Georgia, how would you classify your genre separate to how your publisher has decided or what your genre is? That's a great question. And actually, I have this is my fourth book with Simon & Schuster and my sixth book, published. I also have written two books that weren't published for all of those aspiring writers out there. And I have a lot of import now into genre and and marketing and publicity and the like the way the book is presented. And that those lessons have been hard won and are paying attention to and a response to what's working in the market right now. That and that is like a fancy way of saying what are readers reading? What do they like to read? And what readers are really enjoying right now is romance and within romance, romantic comedy. That's the biggest subgenre of romance. And you can see that easily from what's, you know, working on the New York Times bestseller list and, and what's, you know, people are voting for in Goodreads and things like that. So I would define this book as a romance and as a romantic comedy, even though it is an ensemble book with seven points of view and there's a lot of family drama and and, and storylines that aren't necessarily to do with romantic and sexual relationships, but it is a sort of a broader study of love, both familial love, self-love and, and sexual and romantic love. And so I I was initially hesitant about 
the idea of romance because I didn't really know the genre before I was writing it. And the first romantic comedy I wrote, which was my last book, It Had to Be You, did so much better than my other books. And I found a whole new readership, an extremely devoted, enthusiastic, large group of readers who were supporting me and supporting the book. And I sort of, you know, got my reality check and was like, oh, this is a great space to be in. There's a lot of really smart, successful writers working in this space. And so now I'm really leaning into romantic comedy and romance above and beyond the category of women's fiction, which I obviously hate. Women's fiction is just fiction that happens to be written by and and largely for women. But yeah, we can, (laughs) that's a whole other topic. So that's how I would define Island Time. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a lot of those discussions on the podcast in terms of women's fiction. It annoys the shit out of us too. But but what I love about this is one is your knowledge of the market, your knowledge of what is selling. Because for our listeners, you tend to think that when you land an agent, when you sell your first book, that is it, you are made. But the horrible truth about publishing is you're only as good as your last book. And so as an author, you have to keep pivoting, you have to keep staying relevant. And you know, you don't want to abandon the fans who liked your early work so you want to be producing work that will still appeal to them while you're still trying to find a new readership and what I loved about this book and what about what Georgia just said is you know there's a lot there it's kind of genre straddling and I feel like if family dramas were the thing that everybody was selling right now this could have been marketed as a family drama without changing it too much and and these kinds of books that blur the lines between genres are amazing because there are so many different markets that they can appeal to. But you as the author need to know when you're trying to get an agent what you're pitching that book as. So just because it can straddle a lot of markets, don't send it to an agent and go, well, all of these different people will enjoy it. You need to know what's selling, what the agent is going to want to pitch it as, and that's why those comps, etc., come in to be so important. And something else, Georgia, is that I'm seeing is that queer romances are doing especially well at the moment, which is wonderful to see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm I'm queer and so I am especially like thrilled personally and professionally that queer romance is so popular. And it's such a good point. One of the things my wonderful agent Alison Hunter says, like her kind of number one piece of advice, or the thing that she is surprised that people who submit to her, query to her, don't do more often, is read books coming out in your genre being published right now. You know, for me, I'm in romance. A lot of people will tell me, oh, I love Bridget Jones's Diary. I love Bridget Jones's Diary too. That book came out 20 years ago. The market has really drastically changed since then. And so if you're, you know, understanding where you fall in in the kind of marketplace, where you would be the kind of comp authors, like who, you know, is sitting next to you at a dinner party, metaphorically, it's really important to understand And it will help your agent, your editor, your readers, like understand where you fall. And being able to be fluent in those other writers is vital as well. So for me, that's Casey McQuiston, that's Emily Henry, that's Tia Williams, like all of these writers who are publishing ambitious, 
sort of on the like between commercial and literary like tipping towards literary in terms of their craft and their style the way the words fall on the page romances that are about so much they are a love story at their heart but they're about so much more than that and that's one of the great things about romance right now is it really is a space where you can where you can and readers expect you to dive into more meaty issues, into sort of bigger ideas, into vital representation, into all of these things. The idea of, you know, it's Fabio and a woman in a bodice, like that, that is a very outdated view of, of romance as it exists right now. So knowing the writers that you are kind of like in the pool with is key. Yeah, excellent point that Georgia makes there. And that's why on the podcast, when we bring on our booksellers and you guys phone in and you're asking us to help with comps, this is why we're trying to find recent comps for you. Because a book that was popular 20 years ago, like Georgia says, you know, I absolutely adored Bridget Jones's diary as well when it came out. That book would not do well today because, you know, that kind of fat phobia is not flying today. We're seeing much more plus sized characters in books who are very comfortable with themselves, who the whole book is not about their weight loss. And if they lose weight, they're going to be happier, etc. So I dare say that that book would not sell today. So just because you love that book and it did well 20 years ago, does not mean it's going to be an easy sell for, for an agent, you know, today. And that's really, really important. Back to the prologue, Georgia, at what point did you add the prologue? At what point did you feel like you needed it? Was it there in the opening pages? Because just for our listeners, you know, that prologue is like an omniscient narrator. It's in the present tense. It's like this zoom out of this island. And then we know there's a woman and it's only at the end that the woman is named. But the rest of the book is third person close, like Georgia says, with this huge ensemble cast. And that's all in the past tense. So the prologue is quite different in you know, in, in, in everything. So I'd be interested to know, Georgia, at what point you decided you need it. That's a great question. I love craft questions. You don't often get asked really specific ones. So happy to talk about that. I, for me, this book, the genesis of this project was setting. I wrote it over a pandemic in New York where I live. And I had been at that stage unable to go back to Australia and wouldn't go back for another sort of year and a half. And my last few books were all set in New York, but it didn't feel appropriate to be writing a romantic comedy in New York while the city was definitely still dealing with and and reacting to and coping with this tragedy that had been unfolding over months. It just, I, my brain just was like, absolutely not. And And when you write a book, you're living in it for years, as everyone who's a novelist knows. And it was just this simple question of where do I want to live? Where do I want to be? Like, where do I want to take my imagination? And the answer was Australia. And, the, and you know, more specifically, the most beautiful island that you've never been to in Australia. The island is fictional. I wanted to have complete control over the space and not be, you know, having to work with existing geography so I could put houses where I wanted and kind of create a dream location for my characters I also knew that the book would take place, even though there's a lot of, there's, you know, flashbacks and, and we learn about the characters' lives off island, that the story itself would, would start when they arrive on the island and end when they left the island. So I knew that this sort of opening 
scene, this like opening shot of of sort of slowly bringing us into what the island is, and then someone coming to it would be key. And yeah, like stylistically, the like epilogue and the prologue and the epilogue are both in in first person, and it's sort of this way. I I like it as if this is a longer book. There's a lot of characters. Just sort of, it's a bit of a more gentle um, invitation to the island than just sort of plopping us in there and starting us with a lot of action. I write large casts, and one of the keys to not having readers get lost is introducing characters one at a time. If you have a scene, even honestly with like three named characters, four named characters who are meeting for the first time. I, I don't know about you, but I'm just immediately like lost. I'm just like, who is that? And especially if we've got like three or four women, the writer has to do a lot of work to set it up for me. And I just prefer as a, a writer and a reader to just really get comfortable and familiar with characters sort of one at a time. So you'll notice that happening through the book as well. And that's why you don't get lost. Amelia is essentially our eyes in, even though it is an ensemble. She's arguably the main character, so it felt right. And she's the first person to arrive on the island in our cast of the guests. And so it felt appropriate that we would, that she would be the first person that we're meeting. But the island sort of functions, as you mentioned, as a narrator in the book. The island is definitely a character. It's really about the book really gets into land and Indigenous rights and and what the land is, what the land means. And it was my freelance editor who I work with on books and Sarah Seifer, who I really recommend, who sort of recommended leaning into this idea of the islander's narrator and in between the characters' dramas and, and before we kind of dropped into these different heads, she described it as like your characters are all rooms in a house and the narrator is the hallway. And sometimes like when you've left one room, you might need to like pace the hallway a few times before walking into the next room. So at the beginning of certain chapters, there's writing that's sort of from the island's point of view that is before we kind of are just jumping from character to character, which is another strategy I think to make an ensemble novel readable and palatable for a reader and to be able to you know there's parts that work with metaphor and also to sort of save it from being like a travel brochure kind of writing like rather than talking about how beautiful the island is and how like amazing it is talk about it more as the island that would see itself which is these rhythms of day and night and it's an ecosystem and it's less about oh how beautiful because it is so beautiful and you can see it's beautiful from you know when we're kind of dropping into POVs but kind of when pulling back for that grander larger more ancient view of the island that we're sort of avoiding yeah that that travel brochure writing. Yeah, and that's why intention on the part of the writer is so important. When you know up front that this is your intention, it informs your structure. You know, it informs everything. And what Georgia was saying now is so important in this kind of novel because, you know, the land has always been there. This island has always been there. These people are temporarily on it. They arrive and they will leave. And what stays constant is this island. And in terms of, you know, indigenous rights as they relate to the island, and in terms of conscientious tourism as opposed to just being tourists coming in you know taking what the hell you want from the land leaving nothing of use and just leaving garbage and there you go and that's something that Georgia explores in the book these people have to sign a contract saying that they won't take so much as a pod a seed pod away from from this island so again much larger issues at hand for our listeners, Georgia, what advice do you have for them if they're going to be coming up with an island or a place? Like how were you inspired by real islands? What was your your process there? 
Yeah, another great question and so fun. If you are inspired to create a town, even a house, like any anything, but particularly something as big as an island, I would say go for it because it's so much fun. So I, I, as I said, I, I wanted to really have control over the size of the island, but I also wanted it to be geographically accurate. I do a lot of research in my books, probably a bit more than most people do. I really enjoy the, the research process. And so for this book, I, I know this part of Queensland, Australia. It's where my grandparents lived as a, when I was a kid. I'd visit them for summer holidays and it's where my mother lives now. So the island is modelled off a nearby island that does exist called Gari, which is the Indigenous name for an island that was, was called Fraser Island. And I did a lot of research and just read around what, how the island is formed. It's a sand island. It has multiple different like climates. It has rainforest. It has eucalyptus bushland. It has mangroves. And so all of the flora and fauna on my island can be found on Gari. So that if, it, if this island was to exist, it would be pretty much accurate. There's a lot of Australian animals, which I know American readers like. And the only, there's only kind of two things that wouldn't exist. The first is wild horses. They used to exist on, on Gurry decades ago, but don't exist there anymore. I wanted to have wild horses on my island because who doesn't want to have wild horses on an island? And another animal, which I won't give away because it's kind of a spoiler, but is a, a fun part of that sort of action component of the book. And so I read books around like there was sort of like, I guess, horticulture books, which describe all of the different plants on the island. And I'm as I'm doing that, I'm looking for metaphor. I'm looking for chances to relate to the characters. I'm looking for, you know, and there's so much richness in, in nature. And it's really primed for that kind of writing when you're looking for analogy and, and so on and so forth. So so I invented my island. I The setup of the book is the characters are all stranded there for not the three-day vacation they arrive for, but six weeks after a nearby volcano explodes and wipes out travel in the area. And as part of my research, I contacted a volcanologist, is a, a volcano expert, to discuss the setup with, with them. And I don't know any, <laughs> I don't run in circles with volcanologists. So that was just like a cold email, a few cold emails and someone bit. And what I, what we kind of figured out together was that the volcano would have to be in Umea. And we sort of invented like a string of volcanoes for something to be so powerful, to have the kind of effect I wanted. And as a result of that, kind of discussion, I realized I needed to flip my island around. So it was originally the houses were facing east. I needed them to be facing west. And so I just had to kind of like move the whole thing around and then kind of go through the book and change all of the east-west like references. So instead of being on the western beach, they're on the eastern beach and so on and so forth. And that kind of just, that's just like a part of the process. You know, that's not a really a big deal. But it was really, it was so fun. And, and, then, and then with the Indigenous history of the island, I modelled that on the sort of Indigenous history of, again, like what existed nearby, what would, what would likely to have been, like, to have happened. So when you're kind of inventing these fictional places, and if you want it to feel really authentic, basing it on, you know, modelling it on nearby places or things that existed in history, and, and doing that research to get the richness, like the weirdness of history, like history is always so sort of unusual, to be able to kind of pepper that into your writing will really give it that richness. 
and and allow you to create a, a place to play that feels real. And, you know, we tend to think about world building as something that happens in like fantasy novels or science fiction. But this is the perfect example of how you can use world building to great effect pretty much in any in any genre. And like Georgia says, you know, as you're building that world, pay attention to cultural aspects, pay attention to metaphor and the opportunity it gives you for that. You know, if these are certain themes you want to explore, these are certain things you want to do in the book, say, how can the setting reflect that? Because setting is not just this random backdrop to a story. Whenever you pick setting, it should be that this story couldn't take place anywhere else. And the conflict in the background, you know, in terms of setting should mirror what's happening, you know, in terms of the characters themselves. So, so important to to develop that. Georgia, before we have to let you go, because the conversation's gone really fast, in terms of what you were saying earlier, in terms of juggling an ensemble cast, you know, you did that phenomenally well, introducing us in bits and pieces to each of the players so that when they're all together we're not going who the hell's this what's happening now who's this person what other advice do you have for our listeners in terms of that how did you decide who would be presented in what order and how did that kind of inform the story as well so I generally like to introduce the characters essentially in order of importance. In an ensemble, you know, you want to feel like everyone is vital and a part of the story. But if you're kind of looking at the movie poster in your head, like who are the big, who are the big heads, who are the small heads? So you want to be able to introduce in order of importance. I do introduce like if a, if people are part of a partnership and their storyline is to do with a, like a dyad, like you can introduce them together. But wanting to make sure that we have a clear sense of their voice and what they want. You know, like I, I like to – I teach writing as well and, and something that I feel like I'm always sort of saying to, to my students is you want to be able – like the idea for the reader is that you can imagine it in your head like a movie. Of course, novels have a lot more interiority than screenplay and there are sort of – like one of the great things about the form is that you can dive into thoughts and, and memory and, and all that sort of stuff and that isn't necessarily tied to being able to visualise something. But when we come back out of that, you know, exploring someone's thoughts, we want to be able to picture them, picture where they are and keeping track of them in time and space. So, you know, being able that we have like a sense of their physicality on the page. And then when I'm introducing a larger cast, I want to make sure that everyone kind of gets like their own moment. If they're, especially if they're a point of view character, if you have an ensemble cast, not everyone needs to have a point of view. In it had to be you. I think I had 10 sort of main players, nine points of view. That was very ambitious. And I mean, I think I pulled it off, but it was, <laughs> I don't know if I'd recommend it for a first timer. And in this book, we have, I think there's seven, oh gosh, characters, seven points of view and nine characters, something like that. I probably should have that on lock. And so, but you might not necessarily need to hear from everyone because it can be a lot. So just sort of knowing, and then basic storytelling rules, like know what your character wants, you know, I mean, of course, if you're plotter versus pants are like maybe you want to find that out in the in the writing that having characters have clear goals is is important and helps focus the writing I like a nice balanced cast as far as age sexuality diversity goes you know I'm not going to have a cast of seven like white women in their 30s like you know I, I want to be able to sort of see that 
diversity on the page. That's what readers want to see as well. That's the kind of writing that I enjoy. So when you're sort of planning out your cast, you want to be looking for opportunities to to be able to make sure that you're sort of telling interesting stories from everyone's different points of view. And then generally I, I write out the beats of each storyline so I have a sense of where everyone's going and then braid them together. And it, part of it is this instinctual feeling of like, who do we need to get back to now? Like, who haven't we seen in a while? This was a very funny scene. Like, maybe we need to have like a quieter scene now. Like, that sort of instinctual feeling, which I think just sort of comes from the practice of writing and making sure you just don't leave anyone <laughs> behind and that we haven't like, that you're getting to the point where you're thinking, wait, who is that? What are they doing here? So you sort of, you're a juggler. You're keeping all of these balls in the air. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> And and what Georgia said there is so important, which she said, I wouldn't write a book with seven women in their 30s. Now, you know, sometimes we get queries on the podcast where it's that kind of vibe. It's these seven women in their 30s go for a girls weekend and then things start to happen. Now, keep in mind that trying to differentiate seven white women who are all the same age for your reader, if you're doing a multi-POV novel, is going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult. Never mind that we do want to see diversity on the page, but you know, that kind of ensemble cast is really, really tough to write. So keep that in mind as well. Right. So for those of you who get South African and Australian accents confused, I hope this cleared this up for you so that you will never make that mistake again. We have put Island Time on our uh, bookshop.org affiliate page. If you buy through there, you're supporting Georgia, you're supporting an independent bookstore, and you're supporting the podcast at the same time. Georgia, thank you so much for joining us. This was a real treat. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Q&A session with Carly and Cece, where they answer the questions that you call in with. Remember, if you would like to put a question to them, just go to our website, The Shit About Writing. There is a page that says submit a question and you follow the link there and you can record a question for us and we will try and answer it as soon as we possibly can. Alrighty, Carly, here's the first question. Hi, I'm calling with a question about working with traditional publishing through one of Amazon's imprints. I've heard a few guests on the show who are authors who publish through Lake Union or one of the other traditional imprints that is owned by Amazon. And I'm curious if Cece and Carly can talk a little bit about some of the pros and cons of working with Amazon in this way. It's my limited understanding that working with one of the Amazon imprints means that some arenas are blocked to you, like certain kinds of reviews or lists or working with bookstores. And I would just love to hear more about this. Thank you so much for your incredible podcast. And I hope you're having a terrific day. Oh, this is a really good question. I can speak to this because I have done deals with multiple different Amazon publishing imprints. So I like that you kind of laid out the pros and the cons. So I'll just echo some of the, the same things and run through my own list. So pros, let's start with the pros. You can sell a lot of copies, man, like a lot of copies, right? Because they can integrate all of their marketing with existing Amazon customers. They can send push notifications to people's Kindles. Like we're talking about just the amount of people that you can get your work in front of, you know, that's a lot of eyeballs. That's a lot of eyeballs with Amazon customers. So that's a huge, huge bonus. You know, if one of your goals is have a lot of people see your work and a lot of people have access to your work, you know, that's going to be one of them. 
Another one is you get paid monthly. So once you earn out your advance with them, they actually send you monthly statements. They're about three months behind, whereas traditional publishing is usually about six months behind to a year behind. So you're getting paid monthly once you earn out and and getting paid pretty quickly. Another bonus is that you get paid 35% net ebook royalties. So the rest of publishing, their kind of industry standard is 25%. Amazon gives you 35%, which is an extra 10% because there is no middleman because they are Amazon and all the other publishers are paying that, that cut to Amazon. There was a comment about kind of bestseller lists and things like that. So you can get on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list and the Washington Post bestseller list. Those are two options because of the Amazon and Bezos connections. You can be considered for the Goodreads Choice Awards. Those, again, are Goodreads is owned by Amazon. So anything that's kind of connected through the Amazon ecosystem, obviously, those are a lot of a lot of benefits, right? Because that's a lot of customers and a lot of eyeballs. And now for some of the cons, which depending on your goals as an author, some of these might be might be quite, you know, meaningful and, and, and important to you. So you can't get on the New York Times bestseller list because the way the New York Times bestseller list works is that they rate more highly all of the indie bookstores, individual bestsellers. And so a lot of indie bookstores, I mean, I want to say like 98% of indie bookstores will not carry Amazon published books because their goals are a bit antithetical. So, so really, it's kind of impossible to get on the New York Times bestseller list. Generally, Amazon books are not carried in physical bookstores other than you know, there, at one time there were some Amazon stores. I don't know how many how many are left. So really won't be in any bookstores, indie bookstores, Barnes and Noble, Target, any of that really like they just they don't carry Amazon titles. And you're right, there will be some there will be less mainstream reviews, a little bit less coverage, but it's not impossible to get all these things. It's just not part of the kind of marketing push and, you know, digital sales push, digital marketing push that they are just going for, right? They just they spend their their time and their energy and their marketing power and their infrastructure to kind of support through the Amazon channel. So that's my kind of best pros and cons for you. And I hope that was helpful. That was extremely helpful. I learned a lot here that I didn't know, which is something I love about this podcast. Yay. Okay. Second question. Cece, will you answer that for us? Hi, Carly, Bianca, and Cece. Thank you so much for the chance to ask a question. My question has to do with the book that I'm currently working on. I thought I came up with a really great title, but it turns out that that title has already been used by a Netflix series that isn't particularly famous. I certainly hadn't heard of it before. I think it received pretty good reviews, but not something that's well known. My question is if I can still use the title of something that already is out there as uh, a film or a TV series. Thanks very much. Absolutely. So I cannot tell you how many writers have shared a similar story with me. So I think this happens a lot. What I'll say is that titles can't be copyrighted. So you're allowed to use it if you love it from like a legal perspective. Titles can on occasion be protected by trademark, but it's very rare. So your publisher might want to change it down the line. But for now, what I would do is I'd keep the title. If that's the title you love, you're saying it's not a well-known show, so it's not going to make us think about it. And it's not an issue for now. As an example, there's a new show that I just started watching called Now and Then. And there's already that really famous movie with Demi Moore called Now and Then, which is one of my favorite movies growing up. So it's, it's really not a big deal. For now, focus on writing your book and query us. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. All right. The third question. Hi, I have a question for Bianca. I'm a writer who 
really struggles to get back into the story at the beginning of each writing session. So even if I know exactly what scene I'm going to be writing, each day I kind of feel like I've completely forgotten how to write. And it's really, really tough to find my way back into the story and get into that place where the characters come alive and the words start to flow. And so I find myself procrastinating starting to write almost every day. And I sometimes end up talking myself out of writing entirely. I feel like this is probably a really common problem, but I'm wondering if you have any wisdom about how to make the transition of getting back into your book and into that writing headspace a little easier, or if it really will always feel a bit unnatural and forcing yourself is the only way through. Thank you so much. Bye. Right, so this one was directed at me. So here's the trick that I use is when I am in the middle of writing, I stop writing a scene right in the middle of it. I don't try and finish the scene. I don't try and finish the chapter because when I sit down the next day, it is so much easier for me to pick up where I left off if I left off in the middle of the action. Something else that is very useful is give yourself time before you write to read the last three or four pages that you wrote. That's to get you into the voice of the character, the voice of the narrator, the cadence, the sentence structure, the mood that you're going for. Sometimes it even helps to print out a paragraph or two of your work, have it in your workspace, sit down and type it out as you're looking at it to get that voice in your head and to get those creative juices flowing. But really, it is just bum in the chair and some days are really harder than others. But I promise after about those I feel like it's it's like exercising. You need to stretch. You need to warm up before you exercise. And writing is no different. You need to kind of get the brain working, the fingers working, everything going. And maybe those first 15 minutes are a bit, you know, rickety and, and you're feeling stiff. But it does get better after that. Alrighty, then our next question. In books with hooks, there's a lot of advice about getting right into the inciting incident of the story and ratcheting up tension in those first five pages. So my question is, are the rules for the first chapter of a literary novel the same as the rules for a commercial novel? Obviously, the tone and style will be much different between the different genres, but I'm wondering if you would give the same advice about getting right into the action of a story in a commercial novel as you would in a quieter literary novel thank you Kali okay so this is a good question inciting incident ratcheting up tension kind of what's the difference between all the genres I would say it is less important like less important to have that inciting incident right up front for a literary novel and the inciting incident might be different the stakes might be different for that inciting incident the characters reactions to that i don't have a perfect answer for this because i think also that's one of the reasons we do this podcast is because we need to see that writing you know we need to see those five pages we need to potentially see that inciting incident so this one is kind of hard to answer on a theoretical level so i would say send your query in and your five pages and we will help you out Amazing. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add there? I would actually say that we very rarely suggest that you should add the inciting incident in the first five pages. What we do say is you need tension and these different things, right? So no matter the genre, having your protagonist experience a situation in which there is imbalance, pressure, or discomfort 
and a disruption is essential. And this is true for literary fiction too. So for example, writers and lovers were all obsessed with that book. That scene begins with all these ingredients, imbalance, discomfort, the disruption of that jerk of a neighbor from the very first page, not even the very first five pages. So if you dissect your favorite literary fiction novels, you will notice this. You will notice this pattern. And tension only happens with disruption. So that is what you're aiming for. That is the kind of imbalance. It's not quite necessarily about the inciting incident, I'd say. Thanks, Cece. Okay, next question. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Thank you so much for all you do to make this overwhelming undertaking seem more manageable and maybe even doable for average Joes like me. My question stems from interviews I have listened to on your podcast where writers talk about querying their dream agent. Other than looking at the genres and themes listed in agents' websites, how does a previously unpublished author know what constitutes a dream agent? What sort of other information could be an indicator of a potential good fit? Based on the little that I know, it seems that an agent's work definitely has science to it, but also a lot of art. It feels like this is an important distinction that would greatly influence a future partnership, but I just don't know what I don't know. Thank you so much. Carly? I love that this person says, you know, you don't know what you don't know, because I think there's no truer statement when thinking about theoretical agent relationships than that statement, right? Like, that's it. You just, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know a person until you get to work with them and get to know them. So I really, really empathize with this, with this situation, because, you know, you're asking all the right questions. One of the things that I kind of like people to think about when we're thinking about this topic is that I think you have to, you have to think about who do you want to hear good news from and who do you want to hear bad news from, right? Like, is that the same person? Do you, like, can you, do you feel like you can really go through all of the ups and downs with this person. And I know it's hard when when it's theoretical. But one thing I just an anecdote I kind of wanted to share is that some people think like some writers think they want a real shark agent. They really do. They think they want somebody that's like, you know, up for a bloodbath every time here. But the thing is, a lot of agents that are sharky agents are sharky people. And so I've heard a lot of stories of people who think they want a shark type of agent. They sign with a shark agent. They get this this great deal, but they're actually terrified of their own agent. You know, like I, I just I, I think it's just really important to kind of think about what it is that you want from that agent relationship, what you want from your career. Some people, again, some people want that. that then that's perfectly fine. But I think you just kind of need to know the type of business relationship that you think that you can thrive in and the potential type of people that you like to work with. You know, some people are intimidated by their agents, but really, I mean, over time, you start to build and cultivate this this relationship and this long-term business partnership that is so wonderful. And so it's really just important to know that you can have that that partnership. And some that's why some people go through multiple agents, right? They're trying to figure out who who is the right agent for them. Social media is a decent indicator of like a person's personality, but obviously like not definitive by any means. A lot of agents aren't on social media and obviously, you know, not everybody's putting their full personality out, but, but, you know, can this person sell books in your genre? Do you like them? Do you want to hear good news from them and bad news from them? Are they going to support your goals? You know, these are kind of high level questions that are, that are hard to know without knowing a person, but I just kind of remind you to come back to, you know, what are, what are those goals? And as a creative person, how, how do you think that you can thrive and, and what is the style of agent you think that might suit that? That's such a good point. Cause I myself am terrified of CC. Absolutely terrified. So 100%. Such a shark that's. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, because I think that's the thing, Carly, because I think what you said about getting to know them on social media a bit is important because the thing is, how do people know, you know, who's the shock? How do people know who's the warm and fuzzy agent, etc.? I mean, once they know they like that, they know whether they're going to be compatible. But how do they know? Do you have suggestions there besides social media or CC? I have the baby shark soundtrack in my head. Baby shark, do do. I think we'll rename it because but a woman fuzzy shark you know what I love what Carly said about good news and bad news and I am I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as an agent and I'm also speaking as a writer right now I I don't think there is I don't think there is a partnership a business partnership that involves so much emotion such as the agent-client one. And I'm fully aware that I'm biased as I say this, but I, I stand by it. And getting along with someone is actually super important. There is no way to know if you're going to get along with someone until you try. And so like with so many things in life, it's chemistry. So I would say follow your gut, follow your instincts, but also know that you are allowed to change if if that's what you want to do. Like Harley said, this is why some people go through through more than one agent, and that is okay. Your first loyalty is always to your career, and don't think about it as your career because that'll make you feel bad because I know how your brains work. Think about it as your characters. Your first loyalty is to your characters, to these people that you're creating. Awesome, Cece. Alrighty, next question. My question is, is it okay if your inciting incident happens before the book starts if it if it happens off page and is only alluded to so this was another inciting incident question okay so i get this question a lot from my creative writing students because they'll go the inciting incident was the murder that happened 20 years ago dun 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 and they're like that happened off the page and that was the catalyst to everything happening. Because remember, our inciting incident is the first domino that tips everything over. But here's the thing, even if that was like the past inciting incident, you still have to answer the question, why now, why today? Why are you beginning the story where you are beginning it if this thing happened 20 years ago? So even though that was the original inciting incident, you do still need something to answer the question as to why the story is beginning where you are beginning it. So it needs a present day inciting incident as well. Carly? I, I definitely agree. I think in that case, the inciting incident is the character's reaction to said event. You know, I kind of think about Mayor of Easttown. I know I've talked about Mayor of Easttown on the podcast before, but I, the second season better be coming out because, man, I can't wait. Or third season, whatever we're on now. But there's so much buried in that Kate Winslet character's past. And I think a lot of people would be tempted to say the inciting incident is everything that happened to her in her past. But but really, it, it's not, right? It's, it's the murder that happens in the first episode and her reaction to said murder. But the way that she reacts to it is based on all of those preconceived notions of what the inciting incident in her life was so that's what I would think about yeah and and you know with that example I used with the murder that happened 20 years ago maybe that person sits in therapy that particular day and suddenly they remember this murder that they witnessed as a child so that's the inciting incident for the story beginning or maybe suddenly there's a phone call and someone from their past calls them and goes you know this murder that happened 20 years ago I don't think you know X, Y, and Z happened, I think this happened, or whatever the case may be. So there's always that catalyst that really triggers that story. Cece, anything to add? 
I would just say, remember the trope, the I know what you did last summer trope, right? It's, yeah, sure, it happened off page, but then you start getting notes now. So it doesn't have to be notes to everyone's point. It's just why today, why now is actually the very best way to frame it, in my opinion. Wonderful. Okay, next question. Cece, do you want to tackle this for us? What does own voices mean? Does that refer to just you're telling a story about a person who is your specific race and ethnicity or sexual orientation? Or does it have to do with the actual story? Okay, so own voices is a term that was coined by a YA author, Corrine. And so the term refers to books about characters from underrepresented or misrepresented marginalized groups in which the author shares that same identity. And, you know, obviously was inspired by her own experiences and written from her own perspective. And it also became a hashtag, hashtag own voices. And I think originally it was intended as a movement, right, to bring awareness to the fact that we were reading books that were that feature diverse characters, but that the authors quite often didn't share that diverse identity. Quite not recently, but recently-ish, a lot of people have stopped using that that term, that hashtag and that term itself, because, you know, like so many things, it started off as something great and something to bring awareness and positivity. And, you know, very quickly, it became sort of like a catch-all marketing term used by the industry. And it raised concerns about like the vagueness of the term and made diverse creators really uncomfortable. So for example, you know, a hashtag own voices novel about a South American woman. It's like South America is, you know, a huge place. You know, maybe you specify the country. Is she from Argentina? Is she from, is she Guyanese? Like what, what, what is she? So this is, this is something that's been happening in the publishing industry. We've been trying to move away from own voices and just really just specify the creator's identity and, and the way they want to celebrate themselves and their characters with more specificity so everyone can sip coffee and, and just general respect. So, so yeah, that, that is what own voices means. I went on the diversebooks.org website because I know, as Cece was saying, there was a bunch of kind of going back and forth and just, you know, conversation and dialogue about this term and, and how it can be useful. And I just pulled up their most recent blog post and Cece summarized it really well. But in an interview with Corrine, she said, regretfully, the hashtag is regularly weaponized against marginalized authors. I've seen this happen along pretty much every imaginable axis of marginalization. And I absolutely hate that a hashtag that's supposed to uplift marginalized authors is being used to police and pressure them. And so they go on to say, you know, last summer is when they kind of started moving away from the concept. And instead, we're committed to moving forward, focusing on the specific descriptions authors use for themselves and their characters, and not on forced representation. So yeah, I think uh, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, and I think sometimes it forces authors to have to out themselves in terms of certain things. So I'm thinking of my doc, Vanessa, written by Kerry Elizabeth Russell, you know, this was about a young girl who had a relationship with a much older teacher while at school. And, you know, there were all kinds of uncomfortable themes in it. And she originally wrote in the book that it was not based on her personal experience because she clearly did not want to have to deal with the fallout of that. She had not discussed this with her family, etc., etc. And then a whole bunch of things happened and she was kind of forced to say, 
this is my own story. This actually is something very similar that happened to me. You know, so again, like sometimes authors don't want to come out as being bisexual or sometimes they don't want to have to tell everyone that this is something they went through when they were, when they were younger as well. So I think it does kind of force authors to, you know, disclose things that they don't necessarily want to. Alrighty, let's go to the next question. Carly? Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. My question is, what is your take on querying agents during summer months? All right, querying in the summer months. I suggest it, you know, to be honest with you. I actually read more queries in the summer because I'm kind of catching up on things. There's a lot of seasons where I'm really busy. So summer is a time where I'm more probably likely to to read personally. Every agent is completely different, right? These are just my thoughts. But I don't I don't think that you should kind of scare yourself into thinking that you can't pitch at certain times of the year because then it really limits when you can pitch, right? Which which doesn't isn't helpful at all. The other thing is we don't actually read your query the minute it goes in our inbox. Sorry to tell you that. So, you know, they kind of store up in a bank, you know, in the in the inbox, and then we we read them in chunks at a time. So I'm reading them at a time that's convenient to me, even though it's in the summer. So please just query whenever your book is ready. All right. Next question. Cece. Hi, all. My question is about pen names and building a social media presence. For context, I'm in the middle of my foundational draft of my debut novel, a historical romance set in Edwardian England. I also have a career outside of writing that I plan on continuing for the foreseeable future. I'm considering uh, publishing under a pen name, mostly because my book includes explicit sex scenes. I have a very unique last name, and as much as I would like to see my name on a bookshelf, I also want to be realistic about what it would mean to have my name tied to such explicit content. So one, I'd love to hear your take on the pros and cons of a pen name. Secondly, I'm aware that I will likely need a social media presence of some sort. If I do decide to take on a pen name, how would I build up a social media account with an authentic voice and content that maintains that separation from my personal life? Showing your face in social media accounts obviously helps authenticate an account and create connections with people, but would that totally undo the point of a pen name? Love the podcast. Gosh, gosh, gosh. Y'all are amazing. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to my question. Ooh, fun question. Okay, so pen names are so much fun, right? I understand why you'd want to use one. There's obviously the very famous case of Stacey Abrams, who writes romance novels under the name Selena Montgomery, and like everyone knows it's her. And, you know, it's it's amazing that a politician and a lawyer and a, you know, voting rights activist can also write like really cool romance novels. So she is obviously a very cool person. So I would say, though, that the age of nobody knows who this author is, it's a mystery that that's like not going to happen anymore. OK, so you're going to pick a pen name. That's totally fine. But you are still going to be you. Everyone knows that Craig Davidson is Nick Cutter. Everyone knows these things. So just... I wouldn't worry about it too much. I realize there's sex in your novel. That's okay. Sex is okay. And I would just say, you know, keep keep your identity separate in terms of social media, but don't stress about it is my, is my advice. And I will also add that if you're writing fiction, and it, you know, it seems like you are, historical romance set in Edwardian England, it's social media presence is not as important. You know, so you're not writing nonfiction. It's not like you need a platform to establish who you are and your authority in the subject matter. So you are allowed to just work on your manuscript for now and only worry about your social media presence a little later if if that would make you more comfortable. A lot of authors like to start now, and I think that's awesome too because you build a community. But if, this, if it's giving you anxiety, you are allowed to just focus on your manuscript for now. 
I often believe the best pen names kind of come out of a conversation with an agent and an editor as well. So like, I just don't feel like you, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself to do this all alone. And and brand building like that really shouldn't be done in a silo before you're kind of really entering fully into the business. So, so I agree with CC, really focus on your craft, focus on your manuscript. And and eventually a pen name is a fine idea, but really it's, I wouldn't put a lot of energy into building this whole brand just without a conversation between an, an agent and your future editor. I also want to say that I've written two books about racism, grief, deep themes. The seniors in our family did not read them. I then wrote a book that had some sex in it that didn't get published, but that my sister-in-law bound up in copies and gave to the family for gifts. And that was the only book that the seniors in my family wanted to read because they were really (laughs) exciting about a scene in which there was dry humping in an elevator. So, you know, you think these people are going to have problems with it. They get super excited with this stuff. Okay, so... And now we all want to read the dry humping book. (laughs) Maybe I will make it available as uh, as additional content on Kofi, so you can read my dry humping scene. Which I I, we don't do anecdotes on the show, but I must actually tell you that I was walking in London with a friend many many years ago, and he was telling me about his sordid weekend. And he said something about dry humping in a bathroom stall. And this little British child walked past and heard him because he spoke quite loudly. And all I heard was, Daddy, what's dry humping? <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite stories. Okay, so we have one more question. Cece? Hi. I recently heard on the podcast that Cece likes voice queries, but Carly doesn't. So I'm wondering why, why does it have to be, if it's a no from one, pardon me, why does it have to be a no from both or everybody at the agency? Thank you. Okay. So I will say about this question, you're right. We did have this conversation. I remember the episode that you're talking about. However, one of us liking voicey queries, me, and the other one not loving them so much, Carly, is a matter of taste. It would not make us, it doesn't change, like it's it's unrelated to the rule about a no from one of us means a no for all of us. So these are two separate things. The reason for that rule is actually because we share an inbox. So when someone queries Carly, I can see that query. When someone queries me, Carly can see that query. Same goes for all the PS literary agents. And we scam each other's queries to make sure that there isn't something that, you know, might be a good fit for us. And if there is, we'll reach out to that agent and we'll say, hey, if that's not for you, I'd love to see it. So that is why we have that policy in place. It's an, it's a policy that honors efficiency. It's actually a really great policy. And yeah, the fact that we don't like that we have this different in taste in terms of the voicey queries is just a totally different thing. I promise that if I get a query that's not voicey and I get them all the time, it's not going to make me like the query any less. It's totally fine. Wonderful. All right, that's it for this week's Q&A. Phone in if you do have questions. Just please be aware that we are taking a short break over the summer when I'm heading to South Africa for a few weeks. So it might take us a little bit longer to reply, but I promise we will get to it. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.